O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a tongue, a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light around me become night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. The darkness is as light to you. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me when none of them as yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. I try to count them. They are more than the sand. I come to the end. I am still with you. Oh, that you would kill the wicked, O oh God. That the bloodthirsty would depart from me. Those who speak of you maliciously and lift themselves up against you for evil. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. But search me. And know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, and for the word of God within us, let us say, thanks be to God. Psalm 139 is maybe my favorite chapter in all of Scripture. In the hunchback of Notre Dame, or in Texas, of Notre Dame, where's Rudy? <laughs> Different movie. Hunchback of Notre Dame is one of my favorite films, not just Disney films, one of my favorite films. 
It's got a compelling story, a beautiful protagonist, a great villain, phenomenal musical numbers as we've been able to experience this morning and will continue to. And I love it when two things that I love just seem to line up, don't you? It's nice in life. And as I was reflecting on The Hunchback of Notre Dame, a story in a movie that I have seen countless times, in Psalm 139, a text that I have read countless times, I was amazed at how the two line up. I could preach 10 different sermons on this story, 10 different sermons on this text, but today I've only got one. And so I'm going to talk about three different characters who I see living out Psalm 139, how it, the psalmist seeks to address the way we understand who we are and who God is and who we are in light of who God is and how Hunchback of Notre Dame seeks to do the same. So the first character I want us to talk about this morning is the character Frollo, the villain, one of the all-time great Disney villains. He's a complicated, complex character, but at the end of the day, he is rough. Um, in the original story by Victor Hugo, Frodo, Frollo uh, was an uh, archdeacon, but in the Disney film, he is a, a judge. The point being, Frollo is this man who, who um, possesses enormous regional power in, in Paris, France. And he is introduced to this baby uh, Quasimodo, he names him. Uh, as, a, as an infant, Quasimodo is uh, abandoned um, in the different versions of the story. It goes different ways, but the short version of it is that Frollo adopts him as, as his son, but in a resentful kind of way. And he locks uh, Quasimodo away uh, up into the towers of Notre Dame where he raises him to be the bell ringer of the famous bells of Notre Dame. He doesn't just raise him to ring those literal bells. He also raises him to ring the bells of the faith that he subscribes to. Frollo is a, a devout man of religion, although the religion that he uh, believes in and professes looks very different than the Christianity that I call my own today. It's one of, of judgment and condemnation and hellfire as he sings at one point in the movie. That was pretty good, was it not? Thank you, choir. <laughs> that is the extent of my audition. Um, there's this great scene that underscores um, the way that he's raising Quasimodo early on in the film. Frollo says, shall we review your alphabet today? And Quasimodo says, oh, yes, master, I would like that very much. Very well. A, uh, abomination. B, blasphemy. C, contrition. D, damnation. E, eternal damnation. You know, <laughs> it, it, and it's played up for laughs, but it also makes clear the point that, that, that Frollo is raising Quasimodo locked away in a tower in more ways than one. Yes? He's held back from the community, afraid that they'll think him a monster because of the way that he looks, and afraid of, of the realities of, of life out there as he sings about what could be possible out there. You know, Frollo has a faith built upon serving a God of judgment and punishment, and so he lives in much the same manner, driven by a seething hatred of the Romani people whom we're introduced to through Esmeralda and the other lower caste members of society, the ruffians and, and ragamuffins that he deems unworthy, all justified in his mind by his faith. It reminds me of that stark ending to Psalm 139. You probably heard it, and maybe even went, whoa, is this the same text, right? Where it's got this beautiful, arching, uh, you know, lyrical, poetic language about who God is and God's relationship with us, and, and you, no matter where I am, you're with me, God. You knit me in my mother's womb, and oh, how I hate the wicked, right? 
And suddenly it gets really dark really quickly. It turns into a heavy metal song instead of a nice lyrical one. And I love how it lines up with Frollo in verses 21 and 22. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? Uh, One of the best lines in Scripture. I hate them with perfect hatred. Not a line that we hang up in our kitchens, is it? (laughs) But also one of the more honest lines in Scripture. Have you ever hated anybody with perfect hatred? I count them my enemies. Frollo understands what it means to feel this way. A couple thoughts here. Isn't it interesting how we tend to spiritualize, dress up in religious and spiritual language, uh, our hatred of other people by making it about us defending God or defending our religion rather than us just simply not liking someone else or being made to feel uncomfortable? Don't we do that? We dress it all up in religion, so then it's not me battling you. It's me defending God. See, I get to be the hero in that equation. That's how that works. But I love the psalmist's conclusion as they consider once again, after they've gotten all of this out, they consider how God desires to know us and how maybe that wicked, or another word that could be translated there is that harmful way, might actually be living closer than we know. The psalmist concludes by inviting God to know them once again, realizing their hatred may actually be most harmful to themselves. See if there is any wicked or harmful way in me and lead me into eternal life. You know, Frollo's epic villainous song, Hellfire, uh, it reveals his intense self-loathing that lives just underneath his cloak of self-righteousness. And the two typically go hand in hand, my friends. I've learned that in my few years of ministry. Frollo ultimately meets his demise in that same hellfire that he seeks to send Esmeralda and Quasimodo into. And here's the truth that we need to learn from Frollo and from Psalm 139, is that the hell that we try to send others to is often the one that we end up living in. It's a word of warning. The hell that we try to send others into or condemn them into is the one that we often end up living in. I know this has proven true in my own life. In my teenage years and young adult years, there were people in my life, authority figures, even family members, who hurt me in a really, really deep way. And I can own that and and name that. Um, They they made choices that were um, of poor integrity, and it negatively impacted my life, changed my family, changed the trajectory of my life in many ways. And I, I was angry right? As we are when we are hurt. I was, I was angry and I, I was unforgiving because I'm someone who can be quick to trust, but once that trust is broken, it's really hard for me to want to put that together. I'm not talking about like the simple stuff, like the easy things to forgive, but like the serious stuff, right? We know what we're talking about. And so I can be, I tend to be unforgiving in those arenas, and then that unforgiveness slowly turns into resentment, and then that resentment slowly turns into condemnation, no longer just for them, but for others who have nothing to do with them until finally I feel myself just descending into that hate. I hate them with perfect hatred. There's just nothing else but hate. Until one day after realizing that I needed to go talk to a therapist about all this stuff, I I realized, oh, so-and-so is actually retired and living in Costa Rica now. They don't think about me every other day like I think about them. And -and so-and-so is down doing their own thing several zip codes away, and I guarantee you they don't think about me on the daily that I think about them. And you've heard that phrase that unforgiveness is like giving people rent-free space in your head, and I had to come to the realization that this hell that I was wanting to send them into was just the one I was living in. (sighs) Oh. I hate therapists, don't you? 
I really do. I hate it. It's wonderful. Second character I see in, in the movie, but also in the text, is Quasimodo himself. So Quasimodo is the titular hunchback of Notre Dame. And uh, he's introduced to us as a tragic character in sort of three key ways. Uh, he's unknown. Quasimodo feels unknown. He's locked away in, in this tower. Nobody knows, or if they do, only the rumors. There's the, they will call him the monster that lives in, in the tower. Uh, he's unknown. He's, he's alone. Like, quite literally, he is kept locked away, so much so that his only friends are the gargoyles that become the uh, comedic relief in the movie. And lastly, he feels unlovable. And this is uniquely born out of his raising up by Frollo to be taught that no one will ever love you. No one will ever accept you. So he feels unknown, alone, and unlovable. Have you ever felt one of those three things or all three of those things? And maybe you feel them this morning or maybe you felt them this week or maybe you'll feel them next month. But I think Quasimodo is relatable because all of us have felt unknown or alone or unlovable at times. And part of Quasimodo's story arc, his journey is really learning to, to, to see that he is able to be known, he's able to be with community, and he's able to be loved. But the psalmist takes us on a similar journey in Psalm 139. In the very beginning verses, they start out by saying, "'O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue.'" O oh Lord, you know it completely. The psalmist is going to describe God in sort of three classical ways. What we call the three omnis. But Psalm 139 essentially gives us a vision into each one of those three ways of understanding God's character. And the first is that God is omniscient. God is all-knowing. God can see everything that we have done and will done. God even knows those words that are about to come out of our mouths. Sometimes the words that we swallow back down because we're wise, right? But God sees those things. God knows those things. And the psalmist says God still chooses relationship with us, which I find fascinating. I mean, really, imagine if, if I could see every thought in your head right now, or if you could see mine, God bless you. Imagine if we could see each other's thoughts or others could see our thoughts all of the time. If we could be known to that level of depth that nothing could be hidden, would it be easier to have relationships with people? Honestly, no. I know a lot of us want to be like optimistic and be like, oh no, I want to know everything. You don't want to know everything. You don't. You don't want to know the words that don't come out. You don't want to know the thoughts that happen behind the eyes that are trying not to communicate what's really happening behind the eyes, right? There is a lot to us that doesn't get shared. And, we're, and honestly, maybe we're terrified about what people would think if they knew. And maybe, in fact, it terrifies you to have a concept of God who knows, and yet the psalmist says, no, no, God, God knows, but God is still pursuing. It hasn't driven God away. It hasn't even made God ambivalent. It has made God all the more obsessed in a good way with you. That's hard for me to accept, which maybe is why I love this psalm so much, because I need to read those words again and again and again, that God knows everything and still chooses relationship, not just with us generally, but with you and with me. It's easier for me to substitute the word us when I need to hear the word me. No, God still chooses a relationship with me. How is that possible? 
And then the psalmist goes on in verse 7 to say, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, which was the uh, Jewish traditional place where people go after they died, my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and sit on the farthest limits of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me fast. Still that personal touch, quite literally, of God. The psalmist is describing God as omnipresent, omnipresent. So God doesn't just know and see everything. God is everywhere. And the psalmist is describing quite literally the corners of creation in those days. Heaven would be the furthest limits up above. Sheol is the furthest limit down below. The edges of the sea, there ain't nothing past those seas. Trust us, we know. Well, we'll find out some hundred years later. Um, but that's as far as it goes. That is it. And God is every there, everywhere. And the psalmist says, not only can God be anywhere, but God chooses to go wherever you are. In fact, not only that, God was already there. You can't escape God in the first place. And that's not meant to elicit fear or paranoia, but rather to elicit peace. That no matter where I journey, where I wander, no matter how much I think I'm running away, somehow God's Spirit is still carrying me. And not just in the literal proximity or location, but then he talks about the darkness. It gets into this sort of spiritual sense of even when I think that the light is going to turn to darkness and everything will be dark, God comes up and whispers once again, I'm here. And the light or the darkness is as light to me. Have you ever been in a moment in life when you felt like it was nothing but darkness? I think about when I was in college and first coming to terms with my battle with depression. I even think about a few weeks ago when I realized that maybe I needed an uptick in my meds, and it turns out I needed to schedule that appointment with Dr. Webb and get 24, uh, 25 more milligrams of sertraline. Power to the sertraline people in the room and online this morning. And, you know, those moments where I can be in that moment of darkness where I wonder, oh my gosh, is the light fading? Is the light fading? And still that Holy Spirit whisper can come to say, not the Holy Spirit doesn't say, Scott, get over it. <laughs> um, but the Holy Spirit says, Scott, I, I, I'm here with you, and it's going to be okay. Call Dr. Webb. <laughs> for God to be everywhere, for God to choose to be anywhere. God could simply be sitting in the Notre Dame Cathedral right now, but instead God is sitting next to you. God chooses to sit next to me. God, that's a hard truth to accept sometimes, but I'm grateful for it. And then in verse 13, the psalmist continues, for it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you while it was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. <sighs> Lastly, God is omniscient, God is omnipresent, God is omnipotent, as we say. God is all-powerful, but the way that God leverages that power is a room for enormous conversation in the Christian faith. I love this vision of God's power because it is so tender and so caring and so loving and so personal. It's one thing to say that God is the God of the cosmos, but to say God is the God of the fibers and the depths of the earth, and the innermost parts. To say that God tenderly creates not just the universe, but also you. Again, a hard truth to receive, 
But when we can, it's a grace. And we tend to think of, uh, or when we think about how we're created or when we think about who we are, are, are created to be, uh, it can be so easy to fall into the dichotomies of some people believing themselves to be perfect or at least trying to present as such, and some people believing they are irreparably broken, broken beyond repair. Have you ever found yourself in one or, or both categories of believing perfection was made real or, or believing that you were broken beyond repair? I know that I have experienced both in my life, and yet there is so much room in between in which God works tenderly and with care and what we call that space is beauty. To not be perfect, but to not be broken beyond repair, but to simply be something else, something beautiful that God knows, that God is with, that God loves deeply. My friends, we are known and loved by God in the beautiful spaces between perfect and broken beyond repair. It doesn't have to be an either or. We can live somewhere else entirely where only God sees, only God knows, and certainly God loves. That's the journey that Quasimodo takes. The third character um, that I love in in, in this story is uh, Clopin, if I was pronouncing it super French, Clopin, uh, or Clopin. So Clopin is the uh, jester that we meet in the beginning, and we think that maybe he's just kind of a funny comedic relief character until later we learn, spoiler alert, um, it's been out for like 30 years. Um, He's the leader of this uh, court of miracles, this this, uh, literally underground uh, society uh, of thieves and ragamuffins and Romani people, and uh, Clopin sort of represents uh, the outcasts as we we hear the song, God Help the Outcast. He he represents all of those who are kept locked outside of the famed cathedral of Notre Dame, who aren't even really allowed onto the streets except for a, a special celebration once a year. It makes me think in in Psalm 139, in that passage we just read a moment ago where the psalmist says that God formed our innermost parts, our innermost parts. That that word there in the Greek version of the Old Testament is the splankna. And I've preached this text once before, and you may remember this beautiful word. The splankna is like our deep guts. It's like literally our spleen, if you want to get really precise, right? Um, Now, that that God would make our innermost parts, at first we go, okay, so, so God's putting the organs together. But it goes deep than that, because in Greek, when you put a verb to our innermost parts, when our splankna begins to rumble, it's not just because you had too many party wings at the Cowboys game, it's because you're feeling something called compassion. In Greek, splankmitsamai, it literally means for your innermost parts to be moved, but what it really means is to be moved towards compassion, that God places within us this capacity for compassion. And just like Frollo, the kind of God that we devote our lives to will shape the way that we live our lives, my friends. If we believe in and shape our lives by a God who sees what others do not, goes to places that no, one, that no other can go and loves in a way more personal than we might be able to understand, it will certainly change our lives and the lives of others. The Hunchback of Notre Dame is not just about the redemption of Quasimodo, but the redemption and loving embrace of the fools, the thieves, the outcasts, the ragamuffins, the Romani, the riffraff, the unlovable masses who can't go to mass, the crowds beyond the cathedral. It's not just about Quasimodo learning to love simply himself, but to see that he can ring the bell of compassion far and wide. 
At AUMC, we preach and practice the inclusive love of God. We want everyone to know that they are fearfully and wonderfully made, but it's not enough for that message to only live inside these walls or in the living rooms of those who are watching online. And so the question we are left with this week is how will you ring the bells of compassion? How will you ring the bells of compassion today or tomorrow or this week? I see us ringing the bells of compassion in this community in a few different ways. I think about uh, Jane and Butch, who you may not know, but you certainly know this. Everyone knows our sign, yes? The sign that sits on the corner that proclaims those messages that we believe at AUMC. Well, Jane and Butch are the ones who have to hunt down all the letters to change out that sign when they do, when Aaron comes up with something really good for us to put on there. And they have to tell us, we don't have enough L's for that one. Can you change that word, right? Jane and Butch ring the bell of compassion through that action. I think about Marcy or Corey or Beverly who um, are so quietly studious and, and, and regular in their service with network of community ministries and other community uh, organizations, the way they give back to their community and seek no accolade for it. In fact, they're embarrassed to just said their names out loud in church. They ring the bells of compassion. I think about a couple of our students, Michaela and Ian, who are choosing to participate in a dinner called Together We Dine, put on by a group called Project Unity, something that a lot of our adults took place in a couple of weeks ago that's meant to foster conversation around dinner tables on the subject of racial justice. That's a brave space for two students to step into, and they're excited to. They're going to ring the bells by, by, by participating in that dinner. I think about our Synergy Wesley students who locked down our second row over here and, and the way one little apartment uh, just off campus uh, can invite students in who maybe have never heard a message of a God who loves them deeply, but they can get that there and also some food and some friendship as well. They ring the bells of compassion. And so, my friends, how can you ring the bells? It doesn't have to be big and bombastic. Maybe you never even get recognized but somebody hears it, and they're called out into the streets and maybe even called to that place that they weren't sure they could enter into. How could we ring the bells? Ring the bells. Amen.